0: We're looking at the gospel according to Matthew, chapter 6, verses 7 through 13. If you're new with us, we're in a series on the Lord's Prayer, and we're just going through it phrase by phrase. And this morning we'll focus in on the second petition, which is, Thy kingdom come. Let's look at these these verses together. Also, if it's helpful for you, there's an outline provided for you. Matthew 6, beginning at verse 7. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is the Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, once again, we call You Father, and we're reminded of what a great privilege that is. We can only do so because we've been adopted into Your family. And I want to pray that as we unpack this second petition about Your kingdom, that You will open our eyes. We are called to live by faith and not by sight. And I fear that when it comes to the kingdom too often, we live by sight and not by faith. We hear about Your kingdom And yet, our view of the kingdom is shaped more by what we see on the evening news than what we read about in Your Word. So, Father, send Your Spirit to help us to see the kingdom through Your Word. Help us to understand what we're saying when we say, Thy kingdom come. And we pray that You will do this for the glory and honor of Your name. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Maybe may be seated. As we said, we're calling this series on the Lord's Prayer, the Prayer of Prayers, which simply means that this is the greatest of all prayers. A few weeks ago, I gave three reasons why this is the greatest of all prayers. First of all, this is the prayer that Jesus prayed. I'm not saying this is the only thing that Jesus prayed, but Jesus prayed for the petitions that we see in the Lord's Prayer and we went through those briefly. This is also the greatest of all prayers because this is a prayer that God loves. And we said that if the Trinity were to have a prayer meeting and Jesus would ask the Father, what can I pray for you? The Father would say to the Son, I want you to pray that My name is honored. And the Father would say, I want you to pray that My kingdom would come. And then pray that My will would be done on earth just as it is in heaven right now. So this is the prayer that God loves. and This is also the greatest of all prayers because this is the prayer that must shape our lives. In other words, when Jesus gave us the Lord's Prayer, He didn't just give us a pattern for how we should pray, but He gave us a pattern for how we should live. And most of all, we are to be a God-centered people. We're to be concerned about God's name, God's kingdom, God's will first and foremost. So we're to be God-centered, not self-centered. So we're to be God-centered so that our concerns, our desires, our dreams, our hopes, our longings are related to God and His name and His kingdom and His will being done on this planet right here just as it is in heaven by the angels. Now, at this point, someone could raise an objection. They could say, now Wayne, you're saying that this prayer right here, the Lord's Prayer, is the greatest of all prayers, but I don't see any reference to the Gospel. Wouldn't you think that the greatest of all prayers would say something about salvation? Didn't the Apostle Paul say that Christ came to save sinners of whom I am chief the worst? Where, where's the hope of forgiveness from our sins? Where's the reference to the Gospel? Seems to be strangely absent. My response is, what do you think the coming of the Kingdom is all about? The coming of the Kingdom is the coming of the Gospel. Let me give you just a few few verses so you can see this. Matthew 3. Turn back just a little bit if you're already in Matthew. Matthew 3, 1-2. through In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. And of course, he's preparing the way for Christ who is going to come after him. And he says, repent. Why? For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So John the Baptist says, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then turn ahead to Matthew 4.17. Jesus begins His ministry. And we read, From that time, Jesus began to preach saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Kingdom of heaven at hand. Right? At hand. Right in front of you. It's, It's near. And then look at verse 23 in chapter 4. And he, speaking of Jesus, went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogue, and proclaiming the gospel of the what? Kingdom. The kingdom. The gospel of the kingdom. That's what he was preaching. Turn ahead, if you will, to the next gospel, Mark. And notice what we read right in the beginning of that gospel. Mark 1, 14 and 15. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the Gospel of God. And Gospel, in case you don't know, it just means good news. Proclaiming the good news of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the Kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the Gospel. So the Gospel is the good news of the coming of the kingdom. So what God has joined together, let no man separate. The gospel and the kingdom are not two separate distinct topics. They are one and the same. The gospel is the good news of the coming of the kingdom. Now, to help us understand the gospel of the kingdom, I want us to look at the cross. And let's ask this question. Why did Jesus die on the cross? I have this book right here by John Piper. The Passion of Jesus Christ. And the subtitle is 50 Reasons Why Jesus Came to Die. So if you're taking notes, what I want to do is I want to go through each of these 50 reasons. <laughs> it's going to take us a while. You're not going anywhere, are you? No, I'm just I'm just kidding. Um, but he does outline, actually. Those are the chapters. 50 reasons. And he just gives you individual uh, reasons why Jesus died. But I'm going to make it easy for you. I think we can actually summarize it in three reasons. And I provided these for you in your outline. So they're right there in your outline. Um, I wrote them down for you. I don't want you to miss it. Three reasons why Jesus died on the cross. And you've got to get this. If you don't understand this, you don't understand Christianity. Let me say that again. You have to understand why Jesus died on the cross or you don't understand Christianity. There is a reason why churches put crosses high on their steeple. That is the center of Christianity. So if you can understand this, you can understand everything about Christianity and God's great love for the world. So You've got to get this. So three reasons why Jesus died on the cross. And they go together. Number one. Let me give you a big term and then I'll explain it. Penal substitution. Penal substitution. Okay, What what does that mean? Lily, you know what that means? No. She's got to look a chair on her face. No, Pastor, don't do that to me. Let me break it down for you. Real simple. Substitution. Anybody know that? Substitution. Anybody watch basketball or... Or baseball, right? I was watching some baseball last night and one of the batters went out and they brought another person in to run substitution. Pinch runner substitution. Basketball, people go in and out. Substitutes, okay? Very simple, okay? You understand that? Penal, that just means penalty or punishment. Okay? Penalty or punishment. So simply put, Jesus died on the cross as our substitute, and He endured God's wrath in our place. Okay, so Jesus, when He died on the cross, He was punished as our substitute. He was punished in our place so that we could be forgiven. I explain it this way, and I say this over and over, but it's simple. I tell kids, if you did something wrong, you know it was wrong, you deserve to be spanked, It's like your older brother says, Mom, spank me instead. Jesus took our place. And this is very important. This explains how God can be just and forgiving at the same time. He can be just because He punishes sin. He doesn't let it go. What would we think of a judge who let a murderer or rapist go if we just said, you know what? I'm feeling forgiving today. You know what? No punishment. I'm just going to let you go. What would we think of that? Unjust. That's not right. There's no... No justice. We wouldn't like that. But what if you're the guilty one? Throw yourself on the mercy of the court. You want forgiveness. How can God be just punishing sin and forgiving at the same time? How can that happen? The answer is the cross. God punishes all sin in Jesus so that we can be forgiven when we turn to Him and ask for forgiveness and put our face In Christ. And many passages talk about this, but let me just give you one. 1 Peter 3 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. So Christ suffered once for all sins, so that we could be brought to God. So let's remember that. He died in our place so that we could be forgiven. So, in this view of the cross, Jesus Christ is the supreme sacrifice. He's the supreme sacrifice. That's very important. So that's the first reason why he died on the cross is our penal substitute. Second reason, died on the cross to be a moral example for us. Moral example. Jesus died on the cross in order to give us an example to follow. Now, immediately you can see, if this is the only reason He died on the cross, there's a problem. Because if He's just providing us with an example and He wasn't a sacrifice in our place, then we have to work for our salvation. We have to earn our salvation, which we can't do because we have to be perfect. This is what John Piper says in his book on that view. He says, Imitation is not salvation, but salvation brings imitation. So that's important. Christ is not given to us first as a model, but as Savior. In the experience of the believer, first comes the pardon of Christ, then the pattern of Christ. So the order here is very important. So first, He's our sacrifice. Pays the price for our sins so we could be forgiven. And then comes imitation. Then we walk in His footsteps. And there's a number of examples that talk about that. But I'll give you this one. 1 Peter 2.21 For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in His steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in His mouth. When He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten, but continued entrusting to Him who judges justly. So He's an example for us. And notice the example is given. that when He's punished, He doesn't punish in return. I uh, just recently read a fascinating book called The Son of Hamas. Um, The author uh, Masab Youssef, uh, was the son of one of the seven founding members of the terrorist organization Hamas. And he was raised as a Muslim and uh, endured all the conflicts of the Middle East. The Israelis um, would bomb uh, Hamas. And in return, Hamas would bomb uh, the Israelis, and back and forth it went, and it was never to stop. And as you know, it is still going on today. If you watched the news this last week at all, you heard about Hamas, you heard about Israel trying to uh, broker some kind of peace deal, but yet the fighting continues to go on. And that's what Masab Youssef was a part. That was his life, and he thought, "Where is this going to end?" Where is this going to end? They they hate us and we hate them. Where is this going to end? And then he he went to a Bible study with some Christians. And he read the words of Christ and he read something that he never read before in the Quran. Jesus said, love your enemies. And he said, I had never heard anything like that. Love your enemies. Nobody was saying that. And he realized that's the only hope of the Middle East. Love one another and forgive one another. That's the only answer that there is. And it's still the only answer. And over a number of years, the teachings of Jesus Christ penetrated His heart and soul. And eventually, He converted to Christianity and became a Christian. We're to follow the example of Christ. And it's radical, especially when you compare it to other religions. It's radical. But we are called to follow in His footsteps. So in this view, Christ is the supreme example. And then there's one other view. Christus victor. That's Latin, and I think you can figure it out, even if you never took a Latin class. Christ the victor. Christ the victorious one. In this view, the death of Christ was a defeat of Satan and his demons. Colossians two fourteen and 15. Colossians two fourteen and 15. I'll tell you what I'll begin at verse 13. Apostle Paul writing, "...and you who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him." Having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with his legal demands, he set it aside, nailing it to the cross. So we were forgiven because all our sins basically were nailed to the cross when Jesus was nailed to the cross. So that's going back to our first view of penal substitution. Jesus taking our place, being punished for our sins. And then he tells us what also happened on the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. Now, rulers and authorities can be human rulers and authority, or they can be demonic rulers and authorities. And here the reference is to the devil and the demonic realm. And he says he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Now, let me just give you three phrases here so you can understand what what Paul is saying here. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. That's an okay translation, but literally it means he stripped naked the rulers and authorities. And then he displayed them to open shame, uh, public humili- humiliation, uh, public display, says another translation. And then He triumphed over them. Defeated them. Now, don't miss the irony here. When Jesus was stripped naked, hanging on a cross as a public spectacle, as a disgrace, what did Satan think happened? He thought he won. You know what Paul is saying? Uh-uh. It's the exact opposite. We have an ironic reversal here. What happened was actually the very opposite... Satan and his demons, they were stripped, they were humiliated, and they were defeated. And I want you to see this word that's used here. We don't quite understand it in our context. By triumphing over them in Him. This is a reference to a Roman triumph. Very graphic illustration here. We don't understand it because it's not a part of our culture maybe once in your lifetime, if you lived in the first century, you would experience a Roman triumph. In other words, when a Roman general went to another land and he conquered that land and then came back and had a celebration. Basically, a Roman triumph is a three-day parade. A three-day Celebration of victory over the enemy. And that's what Paul is referring to here when he talks about the cross of Christ and he says it was a triumph over the enemies of darkness. Paul had this image in mind and it can be seen in Plutarch's description of a three day triumph given to the Roman general Aemilius Paulus and this is upon his return from capturing Macedonia. And this is how he describes it. He says, "...great scaffolds were erected in the Forum and along the boulevards of Rome for spectator seating, and all Rome turned out dressed in festive white." So basically, they're getting ready for the three-day parade. They're lining the streets with with scaffolding, we would say bleachers and, and chairs. And they're dressing for the occasion. They're wearing robes of white. And then we're told that on the first day, 259 chariots displayed in procession the statues, pictures, and colossal images taken from the enemy. Imagine a parade with 259 floats. Just one float after another. That's what you had. And that was just day one. And they said, wow, this was great. Can't wait to come back tomorrow. So they came back the next day. On the second day, innumerable wagons bore the armor of the Macedonians. As Plutarch tells it, following the wagons came 3,000 carrying the enemy's silver and 750 vessels followed by more treasure. So 750 vessels of treasure, gold, and just all kinds of plunder from this great victory of the Macedonians. And again, it's just being paraded. This probably went on for hours on end. On the third day came the captives, preceded by 120 sacrificial oxen with their horns gilded and their horns adorned with ribbons and garlands, next Macedonian gold, then the captured king's chariot, crown, and armor, then came the king's servants weeping, their hands outstretched Begging the crowd for mercy. So the defeated king and his army and all the people begging for mercy because they had been captured. They had been conquered by the Roman general. Next came the children. Then came Perseus himself, clad entirely in black, followed by endless prisoners. Finally came the victorious general seated on the chariot magnificently adorned, dressed in a robe of purple, interwoven with gold and holding a laurel branch in his right hand. All the army in like manner with bows of laurel in their hands, divided into their bands and companies, followed the chariot of their commander, some singing verses according to the usual custom songs of triumph and praise of Aemilius' deeds at the very end of the parade, the general comes out and they're singing these praises because of this great victory. And Paul is saying, that is the picture of what Jesus did on the cross over the demonic realm. He is the victorious general. The cross was not defeat. The cross is victory. And we need to understand that. The cross is victory number of years ago, a seminary student was reading a book called Christus Victor on this very view. And he was just fascinated by it. And he asked me, he said, which view do you hold to? He said, do you hold to the Christus Victor view or the penal substitutionary view? Um, He didn't ask about the moral example view because liberals just hold to that. They just think that's all the cross was. But he wanted to know, which view do you hold to? And I said, yes! (laughs) I hold to all three of these views. The borrow from Ecclesiastes, the cord of three strands is not easily broken. All three of these views are biblical and they should all be woven together. And when they're all woven together, then I think we can understand adequately the gospel of the kingdom. The gospel of the kingdom. And then we can understand that the gospel is not just a moral example for us to follow. The gospel isn't even just our personal forgiveness so that when we die, we can go to heaven. The Gospel is also the good news of the triumph of Jesus Christ on the cross over the demonic realm so that He can bring in a new world order, if you will, so that He can restore God's kingdom that was ruined when man fell into sin. Jesus is transforming all of creation, which is why we need to speak of the gospel of the kingdom. And His death on the cross was intended to bring all that about. So let's not be limited. Let's have, if you will, a full comprehensive gospel. So I think with that understanding of the gospel of the kingdom, we have a little more understanding of what we're praying when we pray, Thy kingdom come. Of course, there's a lot of implications to that, but let me give you just three. And you can fill in the outline if you like. Number one, when we pray, Thy kingdom come, we are praying for the conversion of the enemies of Christ. We are praying for the conversion of the enemies of Christ of Christ. In Romans 5:10, we're told that Jesus died for his enemies. There was a time when every single person was an enemy. Christ didn't die for good people. You know why? Because there aren't any good people. <laughs> there aren't any good people. Just recently, uh, someone asked if uh, Michelle and I would be willing to help babysit their kids. And, and they said, we know you're good people and recommendation. And I wanted to say, oh, we're not good at all. We're sinners. <laughs> you sure you want to trust your kids that we're not good at all? I I really did. And if I'm bold, maybe I still will. I don't know. <laughs> there are no good people, no righteous people. they are only enemies. Christ died for enemies so that we could be reconciled, so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be brought into the kingdom. Don't ever forget, if you're a Christian, don't ever forget that at one time you were an enemy shaking your fist at God. You hated God, but in spite of that, He loved you first, and now you love Him because He first loved you in spite of your hatred of Him. But we're praying for God's kingdom to come because not all the enemies have been converted. Not all the enemies have come over to our side. So we continue to pray, Thy kingdom come, that God would open their eyes, that they would see that they're rebelling against God, that they would see that they're part of the kingdom of this world. And they want to be a part of the kingdom of God because at the end of time, that's going to be the only kingdom left. So you want to come over to our side where Jesus Christ is our general. Come over to our side. We have a great God. Turn to Luke thirteen, or excuse me, Luke twelve, thirty two, if you will. Luke twelve, thirty two. In the Bible we have all, all these different metaphors to help us with our relationship with God, in order for God to help communicate to us. And that's why you read through the Psalms and they say, God is God is like a rock. You can trust Him, he, He's steady. Uh, God is our refuge, and and the picture is, you know, maybe going into a great castle, and having, having that refuge. You know, God is like a mother hen, you know, that takes care of its, its, all, all these different metaphors, and, and, and Luke twelve, thirty two, uh, Jesus mixes his metaphors, and he says to his disciples, he says, "Fear not, little flock." Well, what's the implication there? Well, God's people are a flock and, and you have a shepherd and hopefully you know Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leaves me beside still waters. He restores my soul and, and on and on. And then Jesus comes and, and what does He say? I'm the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down His life for the sheep. Now, up to that point, a good shepherd might risk his life for the sheep. You know, to take on a lion or a bear, but he wouldn't lay down his life for the sheep. Jesus, I'm the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. I have authority to lay it down. And then he says, I have authority to raise it up. Jesus is the good shepherd. And here he's reminding us, you're a flock. You have a shepherd. And then he says, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure. And he said, you also have a father. So here we Again, we have another metaphor. And we've already talked about this in the Lord's Prayer. You're also children and you have a Father in heaven. And it's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom, which which means you, you also have a king over you. And Jesus Christ is the King. After He died, He rose again on the third day. And then 40 days later, He ascended into heaven. And right now, He's seated at God's right hand, ruling and reigning over the nations, except. Expanding His kingdom. Bringing His kingdom in as we pray. And He's reminding us we have a king. We enter into His kingdom. But we don't just enter into the kingdom. He gives us the kingdom. Parents think they're generous when they're giving their kids the keys to the car. Our our Father, our Good Shepherd, He gives us the kingdom. It's yours. Enjoy. So we are given the kingdom and it is all ours And when we pray, Thy kingdom come, we're praying that others would be brought into the kingdom and enjoy all the benefits that are in the kingdom. And by the way, you want to be in the kingdom. because, As Paul says in Romans, the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's what the kingdom is all about. Righteousness and peace and joy. Well, what else are we praying? Number two, when we pray, Thy kingdom come, we are praying... For the kingdom of man to be overthrown. The coming of the kingdom has often been compared to the way the Allies defeated Germany in the 1940s. I like this. For all intents and purposes, World War II was over on D-Day when British and American troops established a beachhead in France. There were still great battles to be fought, of course, and lives would be lost. But from that point on, the Nazis were fighting a losing battle. All that remained was for the Allies to liberate Europe. As far as the Kingdom of God is concerned, D-Day was Good Friday. That was Satan's last mad attempt to have God's King betrayed, tried, and nailed to the cross. But Satan was only able to wound him. Jesus crushed His head. And by dying on the cross for our sin, Jesus was actually striking, as we said, a death blow to sin, death, and the devil. Now, the outcome of the two battles is certain. All that remains is for God to liberate the captives of Satan's kingdom and bring them into the kingdom of His Son. So when we pray, Thy kingdom come, we are praying a very militaristic prayer, if you will. We're praying that the kingdoms of this world, the kingdoms of man, would be overthrown. And that Jesus Christ would establish his kingdom. And again, I think that's a great analogy. The outcome is sure. The outcome of the war, it's sure. But there are battles to fight. So let's remember, it's not going to be easy. One author stated it well. He said, in praying your kingdom come, we are engaged in a personal power struggle that can become violent. Because the kingdom of the world rarely gives power without a fight. So it may be violent. But of course, we don't strike back with violence, do we? non advancing of this kingdom. Loving advancing of this kingdom. We don't take the lives of others. We give our lives if necessary to bring in this kingdom. And the Apostle Paul died as a martyr. And 11 of 12 disciples died as martyrs bringing in the kingdom. We give our lives. We don't take the lives of others to bring in the kingdom. And number three, when we pray thy kingdom come, we are praying to the instruments of the redemption of the created order. That's a lot there. Let me say that again. We are praying to be instruments in the redemption of the created order. You know what? Too many Christians think that the goal is escape from this world. They think, oh, if I could just fly away. If I could just escape from this world. That is not the goal. Listen to what Jesus prayed in John 17 in His high priestly prayer where He prayed for His disciples at that time and then later says, and I'm not just praying for them, I am praying for all who are going to believe in Me through them, which includes us. But let me give you just two verses. John 17:15. Jesus praying to the Father says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one." So Jesus didn't pray that we would be taken out of the world, but that we would be protected from the evil one while we are in the world. And then verse 18, Jesus says, As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Here again we have imitation. Jesus saying, Father, you sent me into the world. You had a mission to bring about the kingdom, to forgive people, to overthrow Satan and his demonic realm. And as you have sent me, so I send them. So if you want to know, Christian, where you're going, the answer is not out of this world. The answer is into this world to redeem this created order and bring in the kingdom. That is our calling. Jesus came from heaven to earth. Why do we think our calling is to go from earth to heaven? We will, of course, later when we die, but right now we have a commission to go into the world and make disciples of all the nations. That's our calling. Now, what you probably found radical is when I said we are praying to be instruments for the redemption of the created order. And you might have been wondering, well, just how far does that redemption of the created order extend? And the answer I want to give from the Bible is from the sea to the sea and from the rivers to the ends of the earth until the whole world is filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord until the waters cover the sea. I read a fascinating book a while back called Creation Regained by Albert Waldix. And it might be good for a Bible study. And he made this astute observation. He said, "...virtually all of the basic words Describing salvation in the Bible imply a return to an originally good state or situation. Did you get that? He's saying all, all these words that describe salvation, what, what they're inherently saying is there's going to be this return to paradise, if you will. And he gives a few examples. Think of these. Uh, redemption. What does redemption mean? Redemption literally means To buy back. Redemption means something was taken over, but when you redeem it, you buy it back. You take over control of it once again. Think about the word reconcile. Reconcile means to restore to an original relationship that was severed. So we had a relationship with God, but sin severed that relationship, and now Jesus Christ has come to reconcile us to God and how, how many things is Jesus Christ reconciling according to Scripture? All things in heaven and on earth. That's what the Bible says. Christ is reconciling all things in heaven and on earth. Should I say it again? All things. you know what all things means in the Greek? All things. All things. And this is why I prayed earlier and I really mean we need faith to understand the kingdom. Because we read those passages and we just move right on. And I want to say, whoa, 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 slow down. What, what did it say? Reconcile all things in heaven and on earth. Total, utter, complete reconciliation. That's why Jesus died. That's, that's the implication, is it not? How about Renewal. That obviously implies return to that which was broken and needs to be fixed. Bringing about the renewal of all things. How about regeneration? It implies a resurrection to life after death took place. Salvation. Why did Jesus come? John 3.16 You know that great verse? For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him might not perish, but have ever life... Lasting life, you know that great verse? Do you know the next great verse, John three seventeen? You know that great verse? For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world through him might be saved. And we just move right on. And I want to Whoa, whoa, whoa! Read read that again. God sent us not to condemn the world, okay. But but to what? To save the world. How do you define worlds? Well, you know, world can be fine as that which rebelled against God that He created. It was destroyed by sin. that's, that's the world. And I, I just want to challenge you. How literal are you? Uh, that's why He came. Salvation. And of course, we know that refers to so that people aren't destroyed, but that so they are saved. Salvation. And we see that that's applied not only to individual souls. We see that's applied to even creation itself. According to Romans 8, groaning, waiting for its redemption. Waiting for the curse from creation itself to be removed. It's almost more than you can take in. Many people say the the kingdom of God, you misunderstand, the kingdom of God is spiritual. And, And I want to say, yes, and? Is it just spiritual? I mean, just this spiritual kingdom is it or is it more tangible if you, if you read on in the lord's prayer what do we have thy kingdom come thy will be done where on earth, on earth. where on earth god okay so the kingdom is to come god's will to be done on earth to what extent as it is in heaven how is god's will done in heaven by the angels? Perfectly, joyfully, completely. What what are we praying for in the Lord's Prayer? And it is it's almost comical to see some of, some of the expositors stumble over this. You know why? The implication is is just too in your face. I mean, Jesus says, pray that God's name would be hallowed. Pray that His kingdom would come, and pray that His will would be done right here on planet Earth. Just as it is in heaven. That's what you're praying for. Do you realize that? Do you believe that? Do you believe God's going to answer? Or you think, Lord, well, we're to pray that, but we know that's never going to happen. Well, if it's never going to happen, why did Jesus tell us to pray for it? Something just to consider. I'd like you to compare Matthew 6 with Luke 11, where we have another version of the Lord's Prayer. It's just a little different. This this is what we read in in Luke eleven. Again, Jesus taught in the Lord's Prayer, so at least two occasions, which tells you this is an important prayer. It was given not just once but twice. And this is what we read in Matthew, or excuse me, Luke eleven. Pray like this Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, and then it goes to give us each day our daily bread. What why is that? Give you one possibility. It says, Thy kingdom come. It doesn't say anything about Thy will being done on earth as it is in heaven. Because if the kingdom comes, what's going to happen? God's will is going to be done on earth as it is in heaven. So it could be that this is, while well, it's two separate petitions in Matthew. They're really connected. The coming of the kingdom is inextricably linked to God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven. Which means the kingdom is tangible, friends. Physical. Not just ethereal. Spiritual. Between our ears. The kingdom comes to earth and impacts this culture. That's so important to keep in mind. I love what John Calvin said. He said, the task of the church is to make the invisible kingdom visible. Make the invisible kingdom visible so that people can see it. And we do that by bearing witness to Jesus Christ and what He has done on the cross, where He is right now at the right hand, ruling and reigning over the nations. We do that by submitting to Him and our jobs, our families, our education with our money We do that by yielding to the King. Which means we are offering ourselves, as I said earlier, when you pray Thy Kingdom come, we are offering ourselves as instruments to bring about the Kingdom, to bring about the redemption of the created order. So maybe a good place to close is with this prayer of Francis of Assisi. This is what he said. And I think this is great for all of us. He said... as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive. It is in pardoning that we are pardoned. And it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. When we say, Thy kingdom come, we're saying, Father, we are at Your disposal. Use us as Your instruments to bring this kingdom to earth, so that it can transform this world, so that others can be brought into it. We are submitting ourselves to God. So, in closing, as we pray, Thy kingdom come, let's just realize again, we're giving ourselves to God to be used as He sees fit. Let's close in prayer. Father, this is an awesome petition. Thy kingdom come. And to fully understand it and comprehend it, it would take literally weeks on end. But thank You for what we've been able to consider this morning. And Father, again, I want to pray that You help us to see this kingdom based on the teaching of Your Word and not what we see in the news. And Father, we do offer ourselves to You. Father, use us to bring in your kingdom. As I prayed before the service, Father, use our, use us to bring your kingdom to our neighbors. Use us to bring the kingdom to to our co-workers, to those we rub shoulders with in our in our different activities and our communities. And Father, may manifestation of the kingdom be, be seen in our homes and and in this church. The kingdom of God, Paul said, is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Father, may we experience the benefits of this kingdom and use us for this kingdom to come more and more until it is fully consummated at the second coming of Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen.